Welcome back to the big show. As always, we are the brothers trekking about the original series. Today's episode, The Squire of Gothos. Well, my name is Matt, as always, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and as always, from the eastern side of the state, my brother from Houston. Say hello, Ken. Live long and prosper. Excellent, excellent. Well, there we go. As I said, The Squire of Gothos is the episode tonight. Lots and lots to talk about. So let's go ahead and jump into some of that delicious behind-the-scenes goodness. So to start with, the writer of this week's episode, Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider, you might remember, was the guy, same guy who did Balance of Terror. He described this episode as a science fantasy episode. Gene Roddenberry didn't uh, specifically love that. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, of course, loved to just stick with the just straight-up sci-fi genre, of course, and not dilly-dallying into science fantasy. I think it's interesting if you think, like, again, for me, the difference between, say, Star Wars, Star Trek, I think you got your big differences right there. You got your science science fiction fantasy and your science, straight-up science fiction, wouldn't you say? So... We have a lot of these episodes where we encounter super beings. And of course there's the in the famous dictum that any science, any sufficiently advanced science looks like magic. And of course that's what happens here. You know, the, the normal rules are suspended both for the audience and for the characters so that nobody really knows you know what Trelane can do. What are the extent of his powers we don't know because they're not bounded by the same kind of rules as the ones that normally operate for our characters. Hence, he's magical. Even though, you know, with with greater third, you know, person narration, we might understand what his limits are, what science they're based on. They are sufficiently more advanced. So in uh, the first couple of treatments of this, uh, of this script, it was interesting, there was uh, very little Spock so, of course, uh, Robert Justman was the first person to come up with the idea of like, hey, uh, everybody seems to like Mr. Spock. We got some Spock mania going on. Why don't we give the audience more of what they like? Uh, so uh, they decided to give them more, uh, add more Mr. Spock into the second half of this story. So in another behind-the-scenes mistake, another dropping of the ball, you might say, as what happened with Court Martial, the Team Trek ac- accidentally forgot to keep NBC in the loop on this one again. Kuhn, taking over as producer, just assumed Roddenberry was the one who was going to be dealing with the network directly, and Roddenberry was tired of butting heads with NBC, so he expected uh, Gene Kuhn to handle it. And as a result, uh, nobody even talked to, uh, to uh, NBC, which of course led... Our, our NBC guy, Stan Robertson, to be uh, pretty irked by the whole situation. He wrote Kuhn by saying, um, hey, we understand the errors that have led to receiving this script a week before its planned shooting date, uh, but let's just uh, remind you, as we discussed, there's an inherent danger of this occurring again. 
kind of a threat there coming from NBC saying like, hey, make sure you guys uh, have all your uh, chickens in a row here. Ducks in a row. Chickens in a row. What am I talking about? So uh, Don McDougal was brought in to uh, direct this episode. Uh, he had uh, just has a huge volume of episodes of TV that he's directed. Uh, nearly um, oh, over 100 episodes of TV, uh, to be frank, before he was brought on to do uh, Star Trek. It's well done. So uh, Vanita Wolf, she's the one who plays uh, Yeoman Teresa Ross in here. Again, the one replacing uh, Yeoman, Yeoman Rand in this episode. Uh, was a model and a, a beauty contest winner. Uh, she had uh, 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 done had many modeling gigs and had done a few uh, TV shows as well. And she became the cover girl of the 1967 issue of Playboy magazine. She then married a, married a uh, wealthy nightclub owner and then left show business forever. So this is the last of her. Uh, James Doohan got to make a dual appearance in this episode, both on camera and on the soundtrack. Uh, it was another one of those situations where Justman came on and said, you know, we got Scotty in, what, three, four minutes up at this episode, and we're paying him $850 a week. Are you sure there's not more that we can do with him in this episode? So instead, they added him as the voice of the uh, father of Trelane at the end of this episode. So if you listen carefully, you can hear uh, James Doohan using his uh, almost normal voice. Uh, that's pretty much it I got on the behind-the-scenes stuff this week. So as always, let's dive right into this episode. Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. Uh, open up on the bridge here with our uh, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks with the uh, uh, dismissal of Grace Lee Whitney I now happen to just notice every yeoman now that happens to walk on the bridge Uh, you know whether I know she's going to be a big part of the episode or not uh, it's funny but it seems like just like (laughs) an absence you know Uh, and and a missed opportunity really I was talking to uh, Jamie the other day about the next generation and how like you know you'd have these minor characters like O'Brien you know he has a he has a teeny 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 tiny role in the first episode or you know Keiko as I always bring up or all of these other you know uh, um, that other guy that I've been talking about a lot too from next generation who you know started off at these little like one-off episodes or started off as these little characters who then sort of developed by like say season five and uh, you know like almost a series regular, you know, they were on the, sh- you know, they were doing half the episodes and blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, this is, you know, the late uh, 80s, early 90s, when we're starting to get into this kind of television where, while sort of episodic, also sort of has, a, uh, you know, these arcs to it as well with characters and whatnot. So I understand this is the 60s and that wasn't a big thing. And Roddenberry was, uh, wanted to keep everything specifically, uh, you know, episodic, but you know, how much more could you have done with the story of, you know, Yeoman Rand not only, like, getting over her crush on Kirk, but, you know, becoming some other important part of the uh, of the crew. Anyway, still can't, but help and notice the Yeomans all the time. So, uh, Bones and Kirk are uh, kind of standing around, uh, romanticizing, you know, the desert and comparing it to space. Uh, Spock doesn't really understand it. He's like, you know, these are just desolate areas. Why are we even, you know, talking about this? Uh, but then, I don't know, where we get a space displacement reading? And it's a planet, an uncharted one that no one has ever seen before. 
Well, Kirk says you can't stop. I got to get these supplies to the colony. Uh, the colony. Let's keep moving on. We're going to go ahead and mark it, and then uh, hopefully Starfleet will uh, note the discovery. Or, or he tells her to note the discovery and send it back to Starfleet. But then, and, and what is the name of this planet? Uh, well, we don't know at this point yet. But what what what, is, what does end up being the name of this planet? It is Colony Beta Six. Oh, the colony he's going and to. As soon as they said it, of course. Yeah. As soon as I heard, you know, this reference to Colony Beta 6, of course, I heard Chiron <laughs> Beta 5, <laughs> which must have been their last stop. <laughs> exactly. Where they live with their robot overlords. Did I say overlords? <laughs> I meant protectors. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, uh, there's interference coming from the planet. Kirk decides to give the planet a wide berth and tells Sulu to make a... Uh, a course change. And he suddenly stands up and then disappears. No more Sulu. And then with a funny with a funny noise he yeah. disappears. Wait, wasn't that like the wasn't it like that one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then magically so does Kirk. Spock reverses power as we cut to credits. Dun dun dun. This is a first, by the way. Hit me, what's that? So typically we follow the captain. Captain, you know, suddenly transported to a new location. Shot follows the captain. Suddenly we see, you know, the captain appear wherever he now is. We're going to go through an extended period in which we don't see what's happening to the captain. We're following the crew. We're following Spock's command decisions on the bridge. And the, the captain's absence uh, is obviously central to the story it's what everyone's talking about right but we don't we don't follow the physical captain well and we even got spock you know given the uh, captain's lock uh, we also get him uh Im- immediately at the moment of the crisis when kirk disappears he reverts to um early episode spock yelling yelling yeah yeah Full reverse Full <laughs> <Full> reverse <laughs> So back from uh, the first commercial break, we got Stardate 2124.5. Spock uh, calls their area of space a space desert in his captain's log. Uh, And uh, I guess after his definition in the previous scene, that is apt. Uh, So at this point, we've we've got our first use of the episode of, of we just put space in front of something. Space desert. Space Desert. Pretty soon we'll be practicing space law or space, you know, culinary arts or space dancing. This is, it's at this point, we'll see a reference from Ohura of um, like Space Fleet Command or Space Command. I think it's Space Command. Uh-huh. But we, we also get references uh, to Star now replacing Space as the proper prefix so there's a reference to the ship as a starship and star will ultimately replace space as the proper prefix to put in front of everything so instead of practicing space law or encountering space deserts or whatever we'll be flying around in starships and it'll be starfleet and when we don't use star we'll use the adjective version stellar so we'll be practicing interstellar law so it's a notice that they're beginning to change their reference. We're dropping space. 
Yeah. Moving into seven noon. Well, that's good. I, I think it sounds better that way too. But maybe that's just because of what I'm used to. It's also possible. But uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But I, I think putting space in front of things makes it sound hokier than it really is. Yes, I think so too. Space fleet, Starfleet sounds like you know. Starfleet sounds like something, whereas Space Fleet yeah. sounds you know like a 1950s <laughs> sci-fi yeah. Flash Gordon or something. You know, it's a fleet. Exactly. In space. In space. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, Kirk and Sulu are lost. We don't know where they are. Uh, the crew is like clambering to get down to the planet. You know, Bones and Bones and even uh, the other it's navigator guy. Oh, it's Scott. Yeah, Scott is too. Uh, they're saying we got to go down there. We got to look for the captain. Uh, but Spock says the decision will be made for the safety of the ship. So here we go with Spock again, making prudent choices that are unliked by the rest of the crew. Mm-hmm. So uh, the ship. Well, so at first now, I thought that this guy was a geophysicist because that's what they call him. But then right. later, I think when they're down on the planet, they call him a meteorologist. So he, he's got a lot of things going on. I guess so. I guess he's got he's got the dual degree. Well, so, and you know, it, when so like building these kinds of Star Trek characters for a game, you know, you you wouldn't really just have this one narrow focus. You would yeah. end up if you're the science officer of the ship. I mean, what science does Spock not seem to have some kind of capacity to at least be useful in? Exactly. He seems to know everything. Yeah, so I'd, I'd assume that the geophysicist would also have all the allied fields covered. So I guess, though, since he's a guy, instead of being calling him a Mary Sue, we'd call him a Mary Todd. <laughs> <laughs> all right, just thought of that. Anyway, here we go. Uh, so uh, the ship's geophysicist tells us that the planet is inhospitable and has a toxic atmosphere. Then suddenly, Uhura receives a written message, not one over her little you know, calm thing, but a written message that says greetings and felicitations. Spock responds and gets a response that is not helpful at all, uh, which is tally-ho! Spock decides he uh, better uh, go ahead and beam a group down. Scott offers himself up uh, uh, for the landing party, but is denied by Spock, who says that neither himself nor Scott can be spared. They need uh, two officers, I guess, on the ship. So he sends uh, LaSalle, uh, the geophysicist guy, and Bones down to the planet. We go down to the transporter room. Scotty, as always, is manning the transporter, and they beam down to the planet. So who's in charge of this away team? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I guess LaSalle, question mark? I don't know. Normally, <coughs> normally uh, McCoy is not in command of things unless it's the sick bay. True. So, you know, I just, I just wonder who's who's in charge. Because McCoy, as our series regular, as a, you know, high-ranking officer and as a friend of the captain, certainly seems to be the guy doing a lot of the talking. He seems to be a central guy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you were, you know, let's say, uh, you know, Lieutenant LaSalle and, and put in charge of the mission... Are you going to shut up McCoy? You know, <laughs> Right, exactly. Stop talking to the aliens, you know. <laughs> Not only that, too, but Bones has been on, you know, a few of these. This isn't his first, you know, rodeo down on the planet. Or on on our space planet. Space rodeo. <laughs> space rodeo. It's in his first space rodeo down on the planet. Um, so uh, what about these masks, huh? I don't know if those are exactly the best, uh, that's the best outfit to be wearing for the... Uh, 
for a trip down into a toxic atmosphere? Certainly your lungs are going to be okay, but what about the rest of you? That was my question. I got the answer to that, by the way, and here, here's what it is. Uh, they were talking about using the spacesuits that they wore in the naked time, but Gene Kuhn wasn't around for that episode. So he went back and he watched the dailies of them walking around in those crazy, you know, spacesuits that they had at the beginning of that episode. And uh, he said uh, after he stopped laughing, he changed the script to indicate the party would be wearing environmental suits instead. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the problem with these suits, of course, is that, you know, we, we want to see our cast. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, watching a bunch of guys walk around in suits in which we go, uh, these three identical men are LaSalle, you know, McCoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two of us are interchangeable. It doesn't even matter. Not to mention what good is, you know, bubble wrap going to do when you're uh, down on the planet. Uh, so, on the ground, the planet appears uh, way more hospitable than we originally thought. I guess it didn't matter what they were wearing anyway. Uh, but their communicators don't work. So, uh, already at this point, from a story pan, if we, if we back up for a minute, we look at the story point of view here. We set up a real doozy, right? Because we got crewmates specifically our captain that the lead of the show has disappeared as you've mentioned he's been gone for a while this planet is not what it seems right you know it was supposed to be toxic and inhospitable but here we are on the planet seems fine um and uh not only that but we've got the the hip hip and the tally hose and the felicitations and all of that stuff so it's really set up a really like fun mystery for us to uh dive into into this episode so there's an episode in the Next Generation, um, and it's it's one of the early early Borg episodes, I think, or maybe it's just implied that the Borg were there. But you have this massive destruction of a colony, except for this one, you know, little zone, as though it had a bubble over it. You look down on it, and like there's this crater and this little bubble of green. Yep. The uh, the, is, the old man this, and the old woman. Yeah. And they don't want to leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in this situation, again, we have this generally inhospitable world with this little bubble in it. Yes. And it's not like, you know, you find a colony and they, like, there are episodes where, like, there's a colony and there's a, a physical dome keeping out hostile, you know, the, the natural conditions. Yeah. As you might expect, if we, if we were to begin terraforming Mars or colonizing Mars, it'd be domes all over the place. Yeah. But this is just like, a, hey, look, we can breathe here, and we don't know why, and it's it's crazy. There's no explanation why Trelane, if he was so fascinated by Earth and was in the habit of making planets, didn't just, I mean, out of all the Earth-like planets where, you know, we're orbiting the planet, you're kind of like, yeah, I can recognize continents. <laughs> yeah. Why this isn't one of them. Uh-huh. Adding to these uh, weird and awkward things that have happened that have gotten the story to where we are, suddenly out of nowhere, while trying to set up a beacon, LaSalle finds a castle. There's this awesome like musical cue that happens there, really set up this like medieval mood for it. Uh, they approach and open the door. And inside the medieval vibe is this like 19th century, you know, classic you know, setting with a harpsichord and a, and a globe. And, and for some reason there's the salt creature from the man trap is also inside there. It's all weird, all weird stuff in here. Uh, and they find uh, Kirk and Sulu are sort of like these 
waxwork figures that are uh, that are uh, stood up along the uh, edge as well. No readings from them on the tricorder. And then, out of nowhere, the door shuts by itself. The harpsichord starts playing, and we the camera turns to reveal a man dressed in posh 19th century digs. Uh, he then brings uh, Kirk and Sulu back to life with a wave of his hand, showing some sort of power there, right? So now we know he has some sort of magical powers. And uh, Kirk confronts him with his usual questions. Who are you? Why are we here? What is happening? His name is Trelane, he says. Uh, a very exquisite, he says, to have visitors from the planet that I have made my hobby. <laughs> also convenient for the storytellers and for the people watching as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, what would happen if, if the planet he made his hobby were like Teller Prime? <laughs> exactly. And he's like, uh, oh, you know, I really love the Telerians, but who are you? I don't care about you. Yeah, actually, we know some Telerians. <laughs> oh, you do? Well, in that case, I'll talk with you and interact with you instead of leaving you wax figures. Exactly. Tell me about the Telerians. <laughs> uh, they're really good engineers. So <laughs> fascinating. So uh, we also find that uh, from where he is to his view of Earth, the uh, 900 years of light speed, he can only see the uh, 18th, um, the 1800s. So, so here uh, we have a problem. Right? Yes, exactly. It, our show ultimately will take place in the 23rd century not the 27th century. <laughs> Poor math, that's all. Uh, they're writers, they're not mathematicians. Uh, well, <laughs> there is that. This also I think they just haven't really come up with how far in the future this is. Yeah, that's that was probably an, the real case. Kind yeah. of an, an unworked out you know, fact. Which would be different from like TV shows today, which would have all of that stuff in a big Bible and they would have already been worked yeah. out and figured out. So stuff like this doesn't happen. Where <laughs> Two seasons <laughs> later, we're like, well, it's really only the 23rd century. I don't know what you were thinking. <laughs> this also explains the decor and why he's dressed the way he is because he's uh, only seeing Earth from, you know, 900 light years away. Uh I was thinking, wait till the TV broadcasts start hitting him, right? And like, 50 years, he's going to be getting a lot of input from his stupid humans. Radio and then TV, it's going to be ridiculous. So, uh, Trelane, he kind of wants updates from Earth. What's been going on? What are the best conquests that have happened, he asks. Kirk replies with, our mission is for peace, not for conquest. Bones uh, is silently there taking readings. He's not really understanding what he's getting. Uh, Kirk tells... Uh, DeSalle to uh, put the phaser away, but uh, keep the setting on stun just in case you're going to need it. We also find uh, that Trelane has a specific uh, fancy for the uh, French and for the Napoleon era. Uh, na uh, the Napoleon era. DeSalle uh, tries to sneak up on Trelane, but uh, not very <laughs> tactically, I didn't think so. <laughs> he kind of just makes this like frontal assault of him. So. Uh, and he's not even being hit in the mirror, right? Like, Trelane is, like, in the mirror, fluffing his, you know, sleeves or whatever. He can see, like, you know, Desel in the background coming at him. But anyway. <coughs> I'm just saying, wouldn't it have been more interesting if Trelane had stopped him without seeing him in the mirror? You know, like, wouldn't that have been, like, gave him a much more, like, all-knowing sense to him? But, well, as we find out later, it all has to do with the mirror, I guess. Until it doesn't. Yes, until it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Good point. 
So uh, Trelane freezes DeSalle and uh, learns about what the phaser is. He even shoots the uh, salt creature statue that he's got up there. Uh, Kirk, without violence, just like plucks that phaser right out of his hand. <laughs> How very typical of your species. You don't understand something, you become fearful, says Trelane to, to uh, Kirk. Uh, kind of a trope there of Star Trek, you know, where the people are constantly underestimating humans. But it's also one in which, in Trelane, it seems odd. It seems like he wants to relish in the uh, human's propensity towards violence. No, that he... adopt the position of the superior alien who's like, silly humans. Right. Not only that, but he also wants them sort of to be fearful of him. You know what I mean? He keeps, like, yeah. bragging and using his powers in ways that would make, you know, normal humans be like, oh, my God. Especially those of the uh, 1800s. Sorry. I, I, <clears throat> Let's start our conversation here about whether or not Trelane is, can, be, can be considered a Q or not. Because uh, this could be a little bit fun to, to dig into. Um, this is kind of an interesting look into how they're... Uh, it, so if he is Q, right? Which later in the episodes he certainly seems to be. But yet... Once we find out about the mirror, like there's a mechanical aspect to it. So I don't know if he's Q or not. So uh, imagine this this situation, right? Right. So he's a kid. And, you know, if a kid is making up a world that he's going to play, um, you, you know, you can understand why he might like write something down right mm -hmm. uh, in a sense engage in recording his thoughts so that he doesn't like accidentally genre flip or like well I'm playing dinosaurs but my dinosaurs have spaceships and the spaceships you know are horses and there are Indians attacking from over the hill and you're like wait a, wait a minute what are you doing dinosaurs you know so this may be a recording device. He doesn't need it for his power. Right. He uses it to remember all the details because he doesn't like to pay attention. <laughs> and then yeah. he gets mad when he turns around and realizes that something he imagined or invented doesn't fit the setting that he created. Wait, that's not Napoleonic. That's not Earth. Why did I put that there? Yeah. Stupid, dumb. I'm going to kick it. <laughs> You know, so it's basically like he took pictures of his Lego set. Yeah. So that he can go back and and assemble his Legos, Legos like that next time he plays. And not make something different and go, it doesn't feel right. And why can't I have the Legos I had before? Right. Well, so uh, they discuss how, how he can take, he can basically turn uh, energy into matter then change it back from matter back into energy. So that'd be that's interesting. It's an interesting look into what maybe Q does, right? It certainly seems like Q has a little more power than just be able to turn stuff in it. It just looks like he's able to just, you know, pull stuff out of the air and make it whatever it is. But it's interesting. So how do you feel about this idea of him possibly being a Q? Um, so it, it's the kind of thing where we're trying to make sense of things in terms of things that we already know. Right. So why don't we call him a Charlie X? Right. 
So we, we have a, a very similar episode in which a child has super being powers. You know, we, we, there's these super beings that are basically light, or they that's how they manifest when we see them at the end, who, like, summon him back. You know, so in a lot of ways, this, this episode is Charlie X, but instead of having an adolescent who's trying to fit in amongst humans, we have someone who feels like a younger child. I would say more like 9 or 10. Right. So we, yeah. have, we have none of the emo, you know, sensibility that Charlie X did. Yeah. Interested in girls, morose, things don't work, I'm going to go pout. Right. He instead wants to run and play, frolic, have fun. When things get, you know, irritate him, he throws a tantrum, but then he's quickly, you know, distracted by something shiny. And then, of course, when his parents show up, we get a similar, I don't want to go, but it feels like a younger child compared to Charlie X. But otherwise... Very similar story. Right. Well, I kind of like, for me, I'm the kind of person who's sort of like, I like to tie things together. I like it when there's yep. like a stream. So for me, I love the idea of, of, of him possibly being a Q. In fact, as I did more research on the internet, I found out two other, two other things, neither of which, none of which are canon, but, you know, fans have sort of come up with these ideas. One it's of which canon. is... Fanon, right? Exactly. Uh, one of which is that uh, Trelane is Q's child that was discussed in Voyager. I have no knowledge of that, but that's what I read on the internet. Mm-hmm. So, like, apparently Q has a wife or something, and then the wife ends up in this episode of Voyager. But then they talk about having a kid. So, that's, this is, you know, because t- what's time to Q's, right? I mean, so uh, yeah, we could totally go backwards in time and meet <clears throat> Q's uh, children. Right, exactly. Um, also, in continuing research, <laughs> uh, was I also find out that in one book he was actually de- declared a Q, uh, but it was by one of our not so favorite Star Trek writers, Peter David. So then I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to believe that now, since uh, you know our feelings on uh, Peter David back in his Next Generation novels. But moving on, back to it. Kirk decides he's had enough of this and he wants to leave because that's a very Kirk thing to say. But Chelaine says uh, he can't go and shows another example of his authority by sending Kirk out into the planet's true atmosphere, unprotective. Uh, Behave yourself, he says, or I shall be very, very angry. Which, of course, is the perfect line to go out on a commercial, which they do. We come back. Stardate is now 2125.7. 28 hours have passed. (laughs) So, you know, one imagines a slightly earlier period of television in which they come back and Trelane says, uh, uh, now that you've chosen to be obedient, uh, I welcome you back to my feast with a Nabisco brand uh, you know, cookies. <laughs> and <laughs> Some in-world commercial. Yeah. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Bisquick. Right, exactly. Are you unpopular? I love a good biscuit made with Bisquick. Tastes like the real thing. And the, the problem, of course, is that you can't have McCoy going, this food tastes like sand. <laughs> Water would be a thousand times better than this brandy. <laughs> E&J brandy. 
it, we can't insult our product, right? Yeah, right, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, you'd have to go, well, he's a fine connoisseur. This is the most delicious brandy there is. I'm, right. I'm totally enthralled. Speaking of, that's a drink that is like totally gone by the wayside. Like I don't, I don't know. I, 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 at the steakhouse we have brandy, but at the bees we don't have brandy. We don't even carry brandy anymore. But I, 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 I can't even tell you the last time I served a drink that had brandy in it of any kind. Do you serve any fact, old fashions? We do actually at the bees. Do we actually do have an old fashioned? And uh, for a while we were selling a lot of them, but again, now we don't sell them anymore. Do you have any Tranya? <laughs> no Tranya. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> communications are out, uh, but they have diverted the impulse power to the sensors, and they are now operable. I guess that's another thing that you can do somehow. This is like, again, adding the impulse power engine to the warp drive or whatever it was they did a few episodes back. Oh, power. Exactly. Uh, they have discovered via sensors an Earth-like area. Um, oh, it's funny. Actually, my next note is, it's like that episode of The Old Couple on Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. <clears throat> and it turns out to be her, not him. Spoiler. Uh, Spock lo- logically uh, follows that if Kirk is alive and down there, then that must be where he is. It's a shot in the dark, says uh, Scott. But Spock says the alternative is to either uh, is to stand by and do nothing. What will we so, do? So, you you have this this problem where this could be a coincidence, right? You happen upon a stray planet. It's got some anomalous readings. Captain's gone missing. They must be connected. Maybe. I mean, we know that we're dealing with a super being. You know, a, a whether he's a Q or whether. You know, maybe Q is a category of, of like super beings, right? Rather than a, a type of being, right? Uh, you know, so you know, we know he could be anywhere. You know, he could have been plucked from the Delta Quadrant. That uh, you know, it, it's reasonable to go. Well, the, you know, there's a limit to how far you can move people. And let's start That's here. True. That's true. Very logical. Um, I was thinking, sorry, my mind wandered because I was thinking about, I was first thinking, I wonder if like Picard had ever read about this mission, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in that episode, Next Generation episodes with the square, like if he had read this episode and then I was thinking like how many missions, first of all, how many like missions of just the Enterprise is like standard reading, you know what I mean? Which then brings up the question of how many like just missions in real, you know, in all of Starfleet, first of all, are worth reading. And second of all, um, does stuff like this happen to every ship in the fleet? or <laughs> Because they certainly Starfleet all happen to... The, one... Does what? Starfleet use the case study method? Right, exactly. That's a good question. Students, uh, cadets, turn your, your book to page... Uh... 249 we'll be discussing the case of the squire of gothos <laughs> exactly so uh back on the planet Drelaine is showing off the many flags of france uh i'm sure uh sheldon from big bang theory would love that make it part of his uh his his show sulu uh wonders who is this maniac bones tells us that his scan is he proved, for uh, real <laughs> what's that 
is he for real? Right, exactly. <laughs> Bones uncovers his scan, has proved, uh, prove, proves that this is life, but not as we know it. Uh, exactly. Um, they start to notice other things about the, about, uh, the room. For instance, the fire is without heat. Uh, it's, it's as if the, uh, have they eaten yet? Is this also where they talk about the brandy and the biscuits? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Kirk starts to question, uh, Trulane so I, here. I understand the food, not understanding what the food tastes like. Yes. Cause you, you know, unless you, unless he was a patient guy who sat and watched them make it, you wouldn't even know what the ingredients were. True. You just know what, you know what it looks like in the end, but how do you not know how fire works? <laughs> right? right. Cause it's an, you know, it's, it's a very basic you know, physics property. He's got to be like super removed from the physical universe to have not notice fire. Oh, they have fireplaces. I I know fire. Here, a thing beyond fire. <laughs> Oxygen combines with carbon, produces heat. You know, right? Uh, maybe Instead he's used of, to plasma or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what he's used to. Just like. On the other hand, he probably has like. I mean, again, if he's Q, like we see Q, you know, running around all over, you know, the outside of the Enterprise and whatnot, he probably has no idea what like temperature is. It's very possible. Could be, yeah. He's just so beyond all that stuff. Yep. So, uh, never noticed it. Kirk goes to question Trelane. Uh, you have to understand our sense of duty. There are tasks to perform, but Trelane refuses to let them go. Uh, he's been bored. He wants he wants them to enjoy themselves. Kirk mentions the 400 men and women aboard the Enterprise. Oh, women, says Trelane, and attempts to bring them down, but Kirk stays his hand. This game has gone on long enough, he says. No, says Trelane, I can do whatever I want. Bones' communicator suddenly goes off. They've got a transporter signal. What's a transporter signal, Trelane asks. Kirk smiles and joins his crew for the stance, and they transport away. Back on the ship, they've uh, scanned the planet. There are no life forms, no Trelane. He's not a life form as we know it. Or he's, he's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Exactly. Not as we know it, Captain. Or he'd be up here now. They say they would have beamed him up as part of the uh, as part of the, the the landing party. Kirk prepares to warp them away from the planet. And on the bridge, that awkward yeoman barely whispers, "Oh, I was so worried about you." <laughs> crazy crazy yeoman they are crazy <laughs> i know like last last time they're like scratching his back you know this one trelane then all suddenly appears on board the ship on the bridge he wants to punish spock for his impudence uh who is the spock person he asks spock asserts himself i am spock trelane notices oh he is not quite human no says spock my father was from the planet vulcan well, are their natives predatory, he asks. No, says Spock, almost cha- no. <laughs> Spock's almost challenging him here. He says, but there have been exceptions. <laughs> well, of course, we got the Romulans, right? That's right. Trelane asks uh, Kirk, uh, make sure that you're going to punish him, right? No, on the contrary, says Kirk. I commend his actions. Trelane, I want you off the ship, says Kirk. But Trelane has a sojourn, he says, planned for them. And he magically pulls half the bridge staff back down to the planet into his little 19th century apartment or castle or something. 
DeSalle attempts again to rush Trelane. Not a very smart move, as we've seen before. Trelane freezes him again, calling him, it, calling it the epitome of sublime savagery. Trelane then offers them a drink, but then has Kirk introduce, but instead then has Kirk introduce him to the ladies. Kirk starts off with Ahura, who Trelane calls a Nubian queen. Hmm. I might question that, but since Trelane is stuck in the 1800s as well, I guess I'll give that one a pass. And it's almost as though what Trelane knows are like operas. Right. You know, it's like, well, my conception isn't just, you know, a late 18th, early 19th you know, century conception of the world, but it's the world also as viewed through art. So here we are again. So like the yeoman. So like Trelane tries to kiss the yeoman here, right? And in a little bit, we're going to get the whole dance situation and blah, blah, blah. So here again is another great moment that had they kept Rand, I don't know why I keep harping about this, but it's a thing. Well, another great moment that had they kept Rand in it, you know, that just adds another layer of awesomeness. You know, when Kirk gets mad, you know, pretends to get mad later and like pulls her away and blah, like that whole scene would have been so much more cooler had it been Yeoman Rand, you know, because then you're like, part of it, you're like, is he really feeling this? Is, you know, like what's really going on here? It would have been like, so it's like, it's like the change with, you know, Savic to Valeris, right? From Star Trek three to Star Trek six. It's like, why not at least just recast it or whatever? Anyway, it's, it's just, it's disappointing is all I can say. So, speaking of that example, right, okay. you know, there were all kinds of beautiful elements that were woven in there. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, they never mentioned on screen, but, like, uh, Savick was supposed to be, like, one quarter Romulan. And then when you see, you know, Valeris in league with the Romulans. Right. You know, it would be like, oh, wow, that's related. Exactly. And not only that, but their relationship, too. I mean, not only as mentor and, you know, whatever. It's like, also, there's almost a romantic relationship between them, especially after the whole Ponfar thing, you know? Yeah. Like, again, another layer that just got lost by not making it Savic. That's right. And so you have the same thing going on here with these yeomen. Yeah. That the insistence on being episodic means we can't build on this relationship and create additional tension, additional meaning to hey don't mess with my crew people well wait a minute you know is that because back in episode 12 to be fair to the writers they were still writing for rand right yeah you know so you even have to wonder like at some point once like everyone realizes like no more yeoman rand how many more yeoman will be seeing on away missions or what else yeah before they just forget this you know we don't need this character yes exactly then everything probably goes to uhura at that point when, when that character really just because, becomes the background character who hands somebody a clipboard. Yep, exactly. So uh, anyway, Trelane attempts to kiss the a yeoman. space clipboard. <laughs> right, yeah, the space <laughs> clipboard. <laughs> Trelane attempts to kiss the yeoman and pulls him away and uh, reintroduces him to Spock. Uh, Trelane thinks that Spock is trying to challenge him. You don't like me, says Trelane. Uh, I don't like intellect without discipline, says Spock. I object to power without constructive purpose. You do have a saving grace, Mr. Spock. You're ill-mannered. <laughs> You're human half, no doubt. So, <laughs> I really like that line. I think this is like a great delivery by Leonard Nimoy. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's full of 
because, you know, I object to you. I object to, you know, intellect without discipline. I object to power without purpose. And the, the way it's delivered, I mean, you know, the words themselves are cool, but delivered, you know, right. delivered the way they are, they're especially powerful and they say something about Spock. So here we are talking about this through line. One of the things that makes us like Spock, McCoy, and, and Kirk so much is, of course, their continuity. And when you yes. deny characters' continuity by giving us Yeoman of the Week, it, it, their interactions become less important. On the one hand, yeah. you know, it helps us. One, one of the problems of Star Trek's original cast is that they seem to live their whole lives together. You know, we, we get occasional Chekhov is off on, you know, this other ship at the beginning of Star Trek Two. But, of course, he ends up interacting with his old friends again, right? He's back on the Enterprise. Right. Or, you know, in Six, you, uh, Sulu is in command of uh, his own ship. But these people all, you know, have a through line that's, you know, huge. It's, it, it's almost too big. So you do want a LaSalle, a Jaeger, you know, these the idea that there are these officers who aren't perpetual. But it's also nice when they're also not one-shots. You know, we've talked about our favorite Irishman. Yes. Who's sometimes in the phaser room, sometimes in engineering. Yep. Funny face. Don't forget about funny face. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so having some of these, uh, you know, secondary people not, you know, you don't, just because someone's not going to be with you through all three seasons, the animated series and the movies, you know, doesn't mean that you have to be scientists of the week. You could have two or three episodes. You could appear at various points throughout a season. Right. Again, I like it when they do it, too. It's really cool. Yeah. It's that continuity. And they, they missed it with, you know, we've had the, the actress, we talked about her uh, in, in the, was it the last one? Shirley? Yes. She was so supposed the, to come back, yes. But they had the relationship yeah, I mean, with McCoy. Yeah, she, she, no, uh, I'm thinking of of the, in the in the B romance story. Oh, oh, she yeah. She's the same actress who played the woman who gets married in, in yep. the one that's directed by the same guy. Yep. I wonder if I wonder if it's the director who brought her back. Oh yeah, maybe. So possibilities. So uh, Trelane crosses to dance with Yeoman Ross and magically teaches Uhura how to play the harpsichord. We cut to Kirk, who's kind of who's mad as a hatter back there, you know. Sulu asks, "How long are we going to play? How long are we going to play the charade?" Kirk says, "Till we can think our way out of this." This is where we find the food and the drink have no taste. That's logical, says Spock. <laughs> There's that word again, logical. Uh, he knows the Earth's forms, but that it has no substance. Kirk suspects that this must mean he is fallible. That maybe it's all done with a machine or a device. Trelane is now indulging himself in the dance, changes Ross's dress into a period one. Meanwhile, Uhura is really enjoying herself on that harpsichord. Every time they cut to her, she's like smiling. Dee, 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 dee. Kirk and Spock uh, put together that perhaps it's the mirror that is helping him, so Kirk forms a plan. He confronts Trelane and pretends to be angry about Ross dancing with him. Don't accept his gifts, he says. 
Kirk Ransomor and ends up challenging Trelane to a duel. Trelane pulls out a matching pair of dueling pistols from atop the fireplace, just like the ones that your Alexander Hamilton used in your history. It's like, well, that's nice. Now I am the villain of your history. All right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Trelane threatens Kirk by saying he never misses. He never misses. He puts on his glasses for deadly accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> and we go to commercial. Dun, 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 dun. So when we come back now, we get a captain's log that is a delayed report. That's what he calls it. Captain's log, delayed report. Trelane now is very excited to be being part of a uh, real-life duel. It's uh, fun to see how uh, this actor plays it, you know. Oh, he's, he does a great job. Yeah. So in a relationship that's reminiscent of, uh, let's say, the Joker and Batman, you have this combination of, you know, the guy who wants to protect the normal world. He's very serious. He's a straight man. And then the person who's annoying him is silly, giddy. He's a force of chaos disrupting all this stuff, but he's having fun and he's uh, being silly. And that turns out to be a really good, potent, you know, combination. Yeah. For us, the viewer, we we enjoy watching it. We enjoy how, how those two kinds of characters interact. Yes. Well, you know, it's also fun, too, is, is that is the way William Campbell, that's the actor's name, plays it as an odd sort of like this poshy arrogance that he has. But once you know the end, that he's like a little kid, you also sort of see it as a poutiness of a little kid. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Especially in this next part where, uh, you know, uh, you know, Kirk tells him like, all right, enough talking. Trelane says he gets to shoot first. Kirk says no. And then Trelane says, it's my game. It's my rules. You know, again, not knowing the ending, kind of this poshy arrogance. I can do whatever I want. You know, somebody who has more power can, you know, or again, playing with the idea of that it's the kid stuff. You know what I mean? That he's, he's just, nine. Yes, exactly. That he's nine years old. And I'm going to do it my way. I don't like paying $50 on, on boardwalk. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm going to say it's $5. Ha <laughs> ha. But Kirk says no. He's like, I'm not going to do that. Then, so Tulane threatens then just to kill Spock. The musical tension rises. So Kirk says, fine, fine. You can shoot first. So then uh, Trelane takes his deadly aim, then pulls a Philip Hamilton and shoots into the air. Bang! Now Kirk. Who is not going to throw away his shot. <laughs> right, that's actually my next note. Uh, but like, <laughs> that's expression. You know what he says? Is he then looks at Kirk and says, My fate is in your hands, Kirk. What is your expression? Don't throw away your shot. No, it's my fate is in your hands. Probably knowing that he wasn't going to die even if he got shot anyway, right? Right, yeah. So, uh, but instead, Kirk, instead of taking deadly aims, shoots the mirror and chaos ensues. What a remarkable treachery of the species, says Trelane. Look at it, says, says Kirk. It's over, Trelane. Trelane threatens to unleash his wrath and then disappears. Kirk has everyone beamed aboard the Enterprise. We see the Enterprise fleeing the planet. Kirk wants emergency warp. Uhura says uh, she's going to uh, ask Kirk, should I make a report to Space Fleet Command? There's our Space Fleet yeah, Command. Yeah, there you go. Uh, not yet, says Kirk. 
The yeoman, still in her ball gown, comes down with a clipboard. I don't know what the clipboard's going to say. They just got back. But anyway, uh, Kirk suddenly says, you know, it sort of feels like it never happened. Sulu announces they're about to go to warp. But then suddenly the planet isn't behind them anymore. It's in front of them. Collision course. They try to dodge, but then the planet keeps re-emerging in front of them. They check the coordinates. They have actually moved in space, but the planet just keeps moving. They can't shake it. Kirk tells them, fine, we'll just take the orbit. I'm going to beam down. If you haven't heard from me within the hour, then leave and don't look back, he says. Boom. On the planet, we see Trulane dressed as a judge, just like Q in Encounter at Farpoint. Yep. Trelane reads Kirk's crimes. Against him, I, I guess. I haven't come to plead at your court, Trelane, says Kirk. But he pleads to give up his own life if uh, they will just release the ship. Immaterial, says Trelane, and convicts him to hanging until he is dead, dead, dead. <laughs> Commercial. We come back, Stardate 2126.3. Spock's got only minutes left before he's been ordered to leave. Back on the planet. Okay. Kirk is at, uh, Trelane is actually excited about Kirk's fate. He's ready to hang Kirk. But now he's tired. Everything is so easy. That's your problem, Trelane, says Kirk. Everything is so easy. Kirk convinces him that there's no sport in putting Kirk's head in a noose. You gotta have personal conflict. Put my life at stake. So Trelane pulls a sword. No, that's not enough, says Kirk. No fun in just killing me with a sword. A hunt, Trelane says. Kirk agrees, but to spice up the fun, he asks for his ship to be freed. Then, then I will give you the hunt of your life. Trelane agrees and teleports Kirk outside. Kirk's trying to communicate with the ship, but Trelane keeps finding him. Kirk spores his first against Trelane, swinging and missing as Trelane disappears uh, disappears away and back as the cord is uh, as the sword is as the sword is swung at him. Sword is swung at him. The fight continues. Trelane swinging his sword. Kirk fighting with whatever he can. He has branches and all sorts of things he's trying to use. Kirk runs up the first end to the cap castle, hoping to get inside, but it's locked. Then Trelane arrives with a tally ho, and steel bars block his escape any other way but towards Trelane. On your knees, Captain, says Trelane. You haven't let the ship go, says Kirk. No, this has been too fun, says Trelane. I must get all of your crew down here. On your knees. No, says Kirk. You have a lot to learn about winning. In fact, you have a lot to learn about anything. And then Kirk slaps him in the face and then breaks his sword over his, over his knee. You broke my sword, says Trelane. Then a woman's voice calls from above for Trelane. It's his parents. The reveal Trelane has been a kid this whole time. <clears throat> and it's very, you know, like 1950s television kid, right? Right. So, you know, it's like uh, Dennis the Menace or, <laughs> or, or the Beaver. Right. Or, uh, you know, it, it, you've got this. Um, the mother's almost wearing pearls, you can imagine, right? Dad just got home from, you know, downtown at the office. He's taking the train back home. And when your mother told me what you were up to, building these planets and capturing these people, I was so disappointed. You know, back at the office, we have so much hard work. And for you to be out here carrying on, bothering your mother when she's got to 
a party of you know the the ladies uh, committee for you know building floats exactly. <laughs> it really bothered me exactly i'm gonna make you do a bunch of yard work uh, oh dad you're still dressed in a suit i always wear a suit i don't have other clothes <laughs> what's the name of the show that dick van dyke writes for What's his boss's name? That's what I was trying to remember. Oh yeah, the uh, Brady. Yes, Alan yeah, yeah. Brady. Yeah. So that was my, my my next thing was to take it like, uh, and Alan Brady's coming over tonight, and we need you to you know clean up your room and stay yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly how it works. Uh, but she does call the human beings pets, but they are beings. They have spirits. She says, "You keep making all of these planets." But you said I could have it, he says. I woulda won. I woulda. I woulda. I you saw. Woulda. You saw, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I love it when the, the parents look down to Kirk and, they're, and they say, we are sorry your life path was interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk asks who they are, but he doesn't get an answer. He just gets an apology. And now the, uh, we go back to the, the ship. And the, Kirk, uh, and the ship has now arrived on, at the colony. But Spock wants to know how to categorize Trelane. God of war, says Kirk. Maybe we could call him a small boy or maybe a naughty one. You must have been a very strange small boy, Mr. Spock, pulling, you know, girls' curls and all of these things. <laughs> this list of things that he has the boy do, it's like... Is it, is this, are these 1930s shorts? Again, again, right? Yeah. Is this the little rascals? <laughs> exactly. I'm imagining a bunch of writers in the 1960s going, what kind of pranks did I play as a little boy? Yep. I used to jump the railroad tracks. <laughs> I used to, uh, <laughs> I used to steal the food from hobos. <laughs> it's like, I used to throw rocks as the Okies drove by. It's like, Exactly. These these pranks were like so located in a particular time and place. It's like why why would Kirk be referencing these? You know? Yeah, it's so weird. It's like uh, Spock, did you have a uh, like difficult work to do as a child? Did you have to like feed the chickens and <laughs> and you know like gather the water right. and push and, the plow? You know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Dipping girls' curls into the inkwell. I was like, what? Why? They're not even using inkwells. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's great. So I remember as a kid, there would be like one or two old desks, you know, in, in the school, right? It's like, yeah, that desk over there, it's got an inkwell. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember that. But it, it wasn't something, you know, we didn't use inkwells. We had ballpoint pens. Yeah. Or... You know, we didn't use ballpoint pens either. We used you know, pencils. But it was like the archaeology of school as a student. You could find the inkwell. That's how far back the inkwell goes. Right. You know, is that a contemporary kid, you know, would go, inkwells? I've never, de you know, de uh, put girls, curls, and inkwells. Right. I wonder what they'll be doing in the 27th century. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Needless to say, Mr. Spock does not take the idea of him pulling pranks as a kid very well. So uh, Kirk apologizes to Mr. Spock. And then we end on another scene of Kirk having to smile for far too long. 
<laughs> Nor does he get to do any product endorsements. You know, those fine biscuits Jelaine gave us. The best Bisquick could offer. Hearty. Flaky. Moist. My God, they were delicious. If only we could have those on the ship. We know they come in a convenient 12-pack. Uh, <laughs> just, just like 50s television. After a hard day on the bridge. Uh, <laughs> I... I love a lucky strike. <laughs> Tranya, the taste that satisfies. Bad din. <laughs> All those old camel commercials from uh, that Abbott and Costello thing we used to have, remember? C A M E L S. That's right, folks. C for comedy, A for Abbott. M for Maxwell, E for Ennis, and L for Lou Costello. Put them all together and they spell camel. You should have the whole bridge crew sing along. The entire, yeah, Spock up there in his ears. With a cigarette, you know. <laughs> Wait, Vulcans exactly. smoke? Everybody smokes. It's the 60s. But you're on a small container with oxygen. Why are you engaging in this combustion of uh, this valuable resource? Because smoking is so delightful. That's why my favorite brand of space cigarettes. <laughs> All right, so here's some fun uh, behind-the-scenes information. More behind-the-scenes information. Uh, there was an argument between uh, William Campbell and Chatner. It was a minor one, but they had given uh, they had given Campbell a wig to wear for the uh, for the judge sequence that did not look like a judge wig at all, and so uh, Campbell was like, "We need to we need don't we need to fix this? Shouldn't we do something about this?" And of course, Shatner was like, "What does it matter? Let's just get it filmed. Let's do this." And Campbell was like, "Yeah, but if we're gonna be a you know a, a judge, shouldn't I be a judge?" So the director decided not to vote either way. He decided just to be like, so they had to bring Gene L. Coon down, who was right. Yeah, let's get this guy a different wig. This one looks stupid. So um, <clears throat> despite steering clear of that argument and despite doing a good job of directing, uh, he was never invited back. A lot of the music in this episode was recycled from past episodes. There was apparently also a uh, nice little, uh, the sound editor also apparently used a music cue from the man trap when we saw the uh, salt vampire on display in Trillane's drawing room, so I thought that was pretty fun. The uh, final price tag of this episode, however, was uh, pretty high. It was $194,000, which was about $9,000 over the studio's new budget. It was only four grand, I think, or it was not even that. It was only $1,000 over their old budget, but because they gotten that new Budget from Trelane, or from uh, Desi Lou. From Trelane, may as well have been. Yeah, from Trelane himself, <laughs> that guy. So, uh, so I'm making planets here. You got to save the dollars. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this uh, unfortunately now put the show back in the hole by uh, eighteen hundred dollars. So that is uh, no bueno for those guys. The uh, as far as ratings go, uh, again it was second place in the. Uh, first half hour and then won the uh, second half hour 
of the show. Again, it's weird that I think that uh, back in the day they would put this on at 8.30 to play from 8.30 to 9.30. That seems so crazy to me, but I guess that's what they did. Uh, William Campbell, also the guy who played Trelane, said, uh, In my lifetime, I have maybe met five people that I found impossible to dislike. And strangely enough, two of those people were on Star Trek. Their names, DeForest Kelly and Gene Kuhn. Thought that was a nice little story there to add. Lastly was this uh, letter sent to Gene Roddenberry about uh, the show itself and about this episode in particular. And uh, (laughs) speaking of all of the advertising that could have been done in the show... (laughs) Uh, Playtex at this point was selling a bra that they called the living bra, which was basically this bra that had like a special stretch fabric that, you know, it moves with you. You could wash it 500 times and never worry about the stretch going away. Anyway, so in this letter, this lady writes, Dear Mr. Roddenberry, I would like to tell you how very much I enjoy Star Trek. As a science fiction buff from way back, I almost despaired of ever seeing anything on television That was not meant for children, and not very bright children at that. I sincerely hope your program will continue next year. If not, I think I'll kill all my present bras and never buy another living one. So I thought that was a pretty great little joke on her part. Uh, And then that is it. That's all I got for this episode. Anything on your part that we uh, missed there, sir? No. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, this concept, super being terrorizes you know crew of the enterprise it's a common theme we get it a lot yep it has some powerful you know narrative structure and that we get to disrupt the normal rules and you know if we do it i guess charlie x was our last time right so we got two three times a season yep it doesn't feel like but there are no rules we just keep encountering super beings who just do whatever they want you do it, you know, in four, a, a little bit. You get, you get this. They can rewrite the how the show works. We're gonna put it in a castle. We're gonna put it, you know, wherever we want. There is an episode where Q puts them on a Napoleonic battlefield. Yes, that's true. With some colored lights for the sky. Exactly. All right. Well, another episode down. Onward we move to a very. Uh, well-known episode coming up next, and that is called Arena. Beautiful music cue. Exactly. I I, knew, I worked with somebody whose ringtone uh-huh. totally sounded like the Arena music cue. Oh, I love it. They had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> You're like, well, where did you find this piece of music? I'm like, your phone is totally... And I, I played it for him, right? So I go to YouTube, look, he's fighting the Gorn. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, yeah, interesting. Okay. <laughs> he just, I just wonder where he found it. That's like the most interesting thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't exactly... You know, it was. It didn't oh, sound uh, like, oh, you've got Arena as your... It sounded like, that sounds totally like Arena. But... Yeah. I mean, every time I heard it, you know, I, I saw a giant slow-moving lizard amble across the lobby. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Menacingly. <laughs> awesome. Well, on that stunning revelation, <laughs> let's call it a week. As always, from Austin, 
My name's Matt saying goodbye. And uh, from Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. That's right. And we'll see you all next week for another great episode of The Brothers Trek About.
What is this? F. 